I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I'm Jordan Gonsalves, and I'm a journalist. Join me on my new podcast, But We Loved, where queer elders recount the amazing history they've lived through. In the middle of Wall Street, they stopped traffic. They were doing a dying. And in the process, share little gems of wisdom for the next generation. The key is to understanding yourself, learning to love and embrace yourself. You can listen to But We Loved on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was good! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with part two of our series on gray whales, inspired by a firsthand encounter that Rob had recently, right? Uh, that's right. Yeah, I go into detail a bit more about this in the, the first episode, but basically uh, uh, the, the family and, uh, and I uh, got to go down uh, to Baja, California, Mexico, to see gray whales in their, uh, their breeding lagoons, and it was, it was magical. We got to observe them in their, their, their most peaceful setting. Um, and, uh, and so we're going we're gonna to talk a little bit about, uh, about that setting today, but also their, their cycle, uh, while they go th- why they go through these migration cycles and so forth. Yeah, so if you haven't heard part one yet, you should probably go back, check that one out first, uh, in that we, we explored uh, the, the basics of gray whales, uh, described some of their, their major characteristics, but we also talked about things like their relationship with barnacles. They have some mm-hmm. obligate barnacles that they are usually encrusted with. Uh, today, we're going to focus some more on, on gray whale ecology, such as how they fit into their environment, especially with regard to predators. That's right, especially their, their really their primary predator, their main predator, um, and that is the orca, the, the killer whale. I guess their main predator other than humans. Yes, aside, aside from humans. And of course, there have been fluctuations uh, in the risk posed by, by humans uh, to gray whales. It certainly hasn't gone away. Uh, our, our risk to gray whales go beyond merely whaling them. Uh, it also uh, you know, applies to uh, other things we're doing to the environment. But yes, aside from us, it's the orca that is the main threat. I mean, it's really the orca that is that is the threat posed to, to gray whales that have helped sh- shape what the gray whale is. It's really difficult, it seems, to uh, to overstress 
the importance of, of this predator's role in the life cycle of, um, of this whale in particular, but, but multiple whale species. Mm-hmm. So we've discussed the orca on the show before, I believe, and I believe they've come up, but though I don't think we've ever really done a deep dive on them. They are a, an apex predator. They're an oceanic dolphin. And their range is nothing short of the world's oceans. Um, if you, you look at maps depicting where killer whales can be found, and it's basically like, well, is the ocean there? Well, then that's their range. Though that coverage has also been described as a bit patchy. It doesn't mean like the, the, the ocean's just packed with them. And their conservation status is technically data deficient. Uh, so, you know, th- there's still some some unknowns about uh, about their their, uh, their their cycles and their whereabouts, uh, but uh, the the orca itself has no natural predators. It is the absolute top of the food chain. Now, the orca have long been creatures of reverence for many indigenous populations, especially those you know, populations with ties to the sea. And many of these understandings have a more, I would say, based on what I've been reading, more nuanced. Um, visions of the orcas and understandings of the, of the orca compared to Western depictions that up until very recent times, depictions and understandings of killer whale were, were very much uh, focusing in on their, their savagery and also greatly exaggerating their potential threat to humans. Hmm. Uh, because we'll, we'll touch on this later, but there have been no documented cases of a killer whale in the wild uh, killing a human being. Though there have been quite a few uh, cases in captivity. Right, yeah, and uh, and that's, that's of course, a, a sad story in and of itself. We're probably not going to go into that much, but I did a fair amount of reading about that over the weekend as well. I watched the trailer for Blackfish, uh, and it made just the trailer alone was a bit too much for me. I'm going to have to build up my courage to actually watch uh, Blackfish, which is a documentary about uh, captive orcas and uh, some of the, the very tragic events and deaths that have surrounded uh, that practice. Mm-hmm. But long before that was taking place, you had people like uh, Pliny the Elder, our old friend Pliny the Elder, chiming in on orca. He describes them in detail in one chapter of uh, the Natural History, uh, stating that their form, quote, cannot be in any way adequately described, but as an enormous mass of flesh armed with teeth. You could say that about almost any mammal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't. It's a it's a strange uh, description. Um I mean, we're we're fortunate, I guess, in that we we have so many wonderful photographs, so much great footage of of orca, um, and in many cases as well, a lot of people get to to glimpse them in the wild, uh, you know, from a from a distance, usually, I guess. But um, but still, we we have a better idea of like what a killer whale is, and we don't have to just think, well, I know there was flesh, and I know there were teeth. <laughs> I mean, that image conjures to mind just like. Uh, one of those tumors that grows teeth, but it's just like floating in the ocean. Yeah, it sounds like some sort of science fiction monster. Um, but at the same time, this this chapter is definitely worth checking out for plenty fans because he he goes into a little bit of detail though about their their hostility toward the balena, towards the the whales, and this of course is very true, or at least of of some varieties of work and one variety in particular that we're going to discuss. And it's actually reflected in the name Killer Whale, which um, the uh, the author and naturalist Mark Carwadine, in his book, uh, Handbook of Whales, Dolphins, and Porpoises of the World, he points out that moniker uh, Killer Whale is derived from whale killer. Hmm. 
Now, the species name for the orca is Orcanus orca. Uh, and this is an interesting assembly as well with the ancient Roman use of Orcanus, meaning belonging to the kingdom of the dead, and orca meaning either a kind of whale or a barrel in the Greek. I've seen it also translated as like barrel whale. Hmm. So orca may be the only true natural predator of the gray whale, though large sharks like gray white sharks have been known to attack uh, calves and, and even adults. And then you have things like the cookie cutter shark that makes a small shark species that may take bites out of adults. But these are, you know, I think you might think of these more as, as nuisances than like true predators. Though maybe I'm not being fair to the cookie cutter sharks. I mean, they are taking bites out of, if something was taking a bite out of me, I would consider it probably a predator. So it um, depends how big the bite is. They're, well, they're, as the name implies, they're small bites. And, and, and they're smaller, I guess, the bigger you are. Mm-hmm. But anyway, yeah, the orca are the very, to say the least, a hell of a predator to have to deal with. They are, they are ruthless and, and cunning. They uh, employ various pack hunting, or I guess you might call it, call it pod hunting, attack strategies against their prey. And the list of possible prey for a killer whale is pretty long. Um, they've been observed to prey on great white sharks in the waters off the coasts of South Africa and New Zealand, uh, strategically targeting and removing the livers of these great whites, like tucking into them right behind the pectoral fin and like removing the liver and then eating the liver from the great white. But when it comes to orcas and their diets, it gets intriguingly complicated. So orcas, as Carvadine describes, quote, have a bewildering array of ecologically distinct forms called ecotypes. And while they're, they're generally considered to be all of the same species, again, um, Orcanus orca, you might think of them as genetically distinct orca cultures. This makes sense given uh, all of the different things I was reading about sort of uh, subgroups of orcas specializing in different types of prey. Uh, like, for example, while the orcas are one of the main predators of gray whales, not all orcas would show any interest in a gray whale. That's right. Um, and and you, it gets even crazier when you look at, again, genetically distinct orca groups, these, these ecotypes. And then each, uh, they, they, you may have two different ecotypes inhabiting the same waters, but they don't associate with each other. Uh, each, each ecotype has its own behaviors, its own diet, its own social structure, its own vocal signatures, its own uh, distribution. Uh, patterns. Uh, so it, it gets really fascinating uh, when you uh, look at all the different examples. And I'm not going to go into all the different ecotypes here, but of note for our discussion of the North Pacific, uh, there are two distinct ecotypes to consider. There's the resident or fish-eating killer whale, and then there's Biggs killer whale, also known as transient killer whales, but I think Biggs killer whale is the preferred title. Okay, so I'd imagine it's some of those resident or fish-eating killer whales that, you know, gray whales might go right by them and they're, they're not going to mess with them. They're, they're not going to be interested. Yeah, as the name implies, members of the, the fish-eating ecotype eat mostly fish and they usually ignore marine mammals. Uh, Bigs killer whales, though, yeah, these are the true whale killers. And, uh, and it's fascinating. They live in smaller groups, usually just two to six um, the, the, the groupings for other varieties of like fish-eating uh, orca uh, tend to be larger. They're seemingly, uh, the, the bigs whales, Carbodine writes, are not interested in eating fish at all. Though I have to say, in, in his book, there is a photo of one 
that's labeled as a uh, as a Bigs killer whale that's playing with a salmon in its mouth. So I don't know. Maybe it's just playing with the salmon. Maybe it's eating it a little bit. I don't know. Part of being uh, such an intelligent apex predator is is killer whales have been observed to to play with their food a bit. Mm-hmm. The big killer whale will occasionally kill birds, but yes, as uh, the description implies, they mostly hunt whales, pinnipeds, and sea otters. Now, they are transient. They are kind of erratic, apparently, in their movements. Um, I couldn't help but think of them as kind of like this roving band of bikers, mm-hmm. uh, though, though I'm over-anthropomorphizing here. Uh, and it's also worth noting that one of the reasons that Biggs is preferred over the name transient is because apparently transient can be a little misleading. So their movements are erratic, but they do follow the movements of their prey species. So they're not just, they're not just completely random. Uh, they, I guess we might compare them to the bank robbers in, um, what is it, Point Break? The, the mass bank robbers in the surfing movie. They're kind of oh, like that. Like the Nixon masks. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, they're, okay. they, they may seem chaotic, but they have, they have a code and <laughs> there are certain patterns they're following. Uh-huh. Now, I mentioned the genetic differences. Carbonin mentions that the Biggs orcas are actually the most genetically divergent out of all these ecotypes. And there are actually strong arguments to be made for speciation here. He writes that uh, DNA evidence has shown that Biggs killer whales began diverging some 700,000 uh, to 750,000 years ago. So again, uh, the, the orca, it, it seems difficult to overstress how important a role they play in the, the shape of modern whales, the, the, um, uh, the way that these whales have survived. Because one of the things you have to survive in the world uh, as, as a whale, or basically any organism that's going to be in the same waters as the killer whale, you have to be able to survive the killer whale. And it's a heck of a thing to have to survive because it, I, mean, I just kept thinking, reading about them, that it's like they seem like the, the, the absolute perfect uh, oceanic predator. You know, like they are, um, they're, they're robust, they're fast, they're intelligent, they're, they're social. Um, you know, you can, you can compare them in some ways to something like a great white shark, but great white sharks are for the most part solitary. Like they don't work together. They, they lack the, uh, the, the intellect of a, of, of a, of a, of an orca. Uh, the, the orcas are just, and then the orcas are also not, not to say that sharks are set in their ways, but, but like the orca has shown that they have a, have a real resiliency, that they can, they can change, they can alter uh, their, uh, the, you know, whatever um, uh, happen if there are changes in available food sources, they may uh, shift in what they're eating, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And so for just a few examples of how this has affected the, uh, uh, the shape of modern whales, uh, I was reading another book, Whales, Their Biology and Behavior by Hammond et al., and apparently um, their, uh, their threat factors into the audible world of the marine environment. So fish-eating orca produce loud clicks that in many cases their prey can't hear. This is certainly seems to be the case with salmon, for example. Uh, and they use these clicks for echolocation. But the Biggs killer whale, well, they're, they're feeding mostly or, or exclusively on mammals that are acoustically sensitive. And so Biggs killer, killer whales are quieter, and they use uh, what they, they refer to in this book as a cryptic echolocation strategy that employs fewer clicks and irregular timing of said clicks. Oh, so it's harder to detect that you are being clicked at. Right, right. And uh, the threat of the big killer whales has led to led various whale species to adopt the use of uh, narrow band high frequency clicks that orcas can't hear. So pygmy sperm whales, for example, do this, uh, though they sacrifice signal range for stealth 
uh, by making this change. Uh, other whales, like beaked whales, only use their echolocation at great depths below where the orcas hunt. Mm. And there are also various um, anti-orca, anti-predator strategies that various whales use. I think we'll end up discussing these in a bit. But basically, like the, the orca pose such a threat and such a complex and intelligent threat. Like every uh, every whale species on the menu has had to adapt to that threat and come up with tactics for survival. Yes, though I think as we mentioned in. The last episode, one thing that's very important to stress is that for most whale species we're talking about, there might be some, a couple of exceptions, such as like uh, maybe some of the the minka whales. But for most uh, baleen whale species, it is really only the young that are directly threatened by orcas. Orcas rarely try to prey on uh, healthy adults and even even more rarely succeed in preying on healthy adults. Right. I mean, you will find some accounts. I think there was a re- I was just reading this before we came in here. There was uh, an account of what seemed to be uh, a pack of orcas attacking an adult blue whale. Mm-hmm. But yes, for the most part, you, it, this goes for a, a I mean, most predator species, you know, what are predators going after? Are they going after the hardest thing possible to kill? Uh, no, there's a, there, there's a, 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 you know, various economic factors that have to be taken into account. They want to go after the easiest thing to get that will give them that, um, that, uh, that nutrient payoff. And in the case of, of whales, yeah, the calves are the best bet. They're smaller, they're, they're weaker. If they can separate them, if they can get to them, if they have, if they can, tip uh, the scales in their favor, then that's what they're going to go for. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting. Uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen 
a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for deliverance. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A paper that I'm going to talk about in a minute cites an older bit of research from Rice and Woolman, uh, published in the year 1971, that included a survey of uh, the bodies of 316 gray whales that I think were uh, off the coast of California. And it found that of those whales, 18% had scars from previous orca attacks. And these would have been orca attacks, I guess, that the whales survived. That doesn't necessarily tell you how many whales did not survive orca attacks. Oh, that's, that's interesting. Um, Carwadine writes that, that possibly every single gray whale alive has possibly been I think the way he worded it was in the mouth of a killer whale at one point or another. And certainly you see you see a lot of these rake-like scars left by orca teeth uh, mm-hmm. on their bodies. Uh, they, they're apparently um, attacked by the, the orca uh, at, at a greater rate than any other whale species. And as far as the young go, according to Carbodine, orca, quote, probably take up to 35% of the gray whale calf population annually. Mm. And most of those attacks, it is believed, occur on the migratory corridor, and we'll talk more about gray whale migrations in uh, in a little bit, or possibly uh, in the next episode if this series goes to three parts. But um, yeah, there's like a migratory corridor for the uh, for the eastern Pacific gray whale, where they go back and forth between their northern feeding grounds up in the Arctic regions uh, in the in the summertime, and then in the colder months they go south to areas like Baja California, where they have their breeding grounds, their calving grounds, and these lagoons. And it's during the travel back and forth that a lot of these attacks are going to occur. That's right. Um, yeah, and we'll we'll get into the specifics of that in a bit. But but again, the the orcas are are cunning, and they're going to choose the exact right time, the exact right place uh, to attack these uh, these rather large prey animals. Uh, but you know, briefly, uh, you know, again, why is this migration taking place? Well, it's because when you have a threat like the orca, as a mother whale, you can't just give birth anywhere. You have to go where the orcas cannot go or won't go. And that's where these, uh, these, these lagoons come into play. Um, like the Ojo de Leabre lagoon that I went to in, um, uh, near Guerrero Negro in, um, in, uh, in Baja, California, Mexico, a place that is shallow, too shallow to favor certain killer whale hunting strategies, but also not so shallow that uh, the, the whales themselves cannot move around in the waters. Now, that being said, um, I happened across a, a paper. This came out just last year in October. Uh, and uh, this, the title of this paper was New Peril for Gray Whale Survival? Question mark. Predatory Orcas Spotted in Baja Calving Lagoon. It's a situation where uh, observers there had not seen orcas venturing into the lagoon, but then there was a spotting uh, of them. And um, 
it's it doesn't sound like much came of this. It doesn't seem like there was any real follow-up coverage uh, that would indicate that the orcas came back and, say, killed a bunch of calves or anything. I guess it was maybe more like a scouting mission. Uh, like maybe the, the orcas come in, they kind of realize, okay, well, these this is not optimal for hunting, even though the things we want to eat are here. And then they move around and go back. But anyway, in this paper, the the author speaks with Stephen Schwartz, a primary researcher with the Laguna San Ignacio Ecosystem Science Project uh, down there. And the way he describes it is, okay, you have the, the orcas, they're engaging in this, they engage in this kind of pack hunting behavior, but it's not two-dimensional, it's three-dimensional, uh, especially when they're going up against dangerous prey like the gray whale, something that can conceivably kill them with a single blow of its tail. Mm-hmm. Uh, they need to be able to employ all of their strategies. They need to be able to, you know, come at it from below, from the sides, et cetera. And we'll get into some of their tactics here in a bit. But basically, they can't do that in the lagoon environment. Right. And as uh, surface-dwelling animals, we're it's not intuitive for us to think about uh, physical conflict in this way, really. You know, we're usually thinking about physical conflict taking place with something on the same level as us on a plane. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in this case, it would be something more like, you know, a space fight in like a Star Wars movie where there's, you know, there is multidirectional attack. Exactly. Yeah. So, again, the, the orcas are cunning. They're intelligent. Uh, they realize that this is not the battlefield where they will have the advantage. And they know that if they they wait it out, uh, there will come a time when the battlefield does tip to their advantage. Now, one thing we always uh, try to do, at least when we remember, is, you know, it's like uh, when you're approaching the subject of predator-prey conflicts from the origin point of the prey animal, like we we started off talking about gray whales and then now we're talking about orcas, that can tend to kind of make you want to, even if you, you normally uh, have, have some protections against this, to unconsciously vilify the predator animal. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, think like, oh, the orcas are so bad because they're attacking the gray whales we've been thinking about. But of course, you know, we all know that the orcas are, are beautiful, wonderful animals in their own way. And they're also just trying to survive, that this is just what their ecological niche is, their predators. Yeah, that's right. We can't think, think of it uh, as, uh, as, as uh, heroes versus villains and all of this, though I know it's, it's very tempting to do so. And I found myself sort of fighting off that feeling, especially when, when observing the, the gray whales. Uh, but in, even in that, that paper, that Los Angeles Times uh, paper, and I, I want to credit the author on that, uh, Suzanne Rust is the author. Uh, in uh, in speaking with uh, Swartz, like Swartz basically, uh, you know, says like, look, you know, this is just this is how it is. Uh, you know, we're we're not just you know, looking out for the great whales here. We're also looking out for the orca. Like they're they're it's part of the natural cycle of things here. So uh, we shouldn't yeah we shouldn't fall into that line of thinking where oh no the 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 the, the orca the orcas are the enemy and the great whales are are the only heroes of the uh, the ecology story going on before us. That being said, let's get into some of the dastardly ways <laughs> that the orcas attack uh, gray whales and other whale species. <laughs> Not dastardly, except in the sense that every organism is, I guess, dastardly in its, in its quest for survival. Well, they're, they're uh, solving problems. They're solving yes. problems. Uh, okay, so I wanted to return to a paper 
that uh, I uh, brought up with a more narrow focus in the the previous episode, and it was a paper called Fight or Flight, Anti-Predator Strategies of Baleen Whales, published in the Mammal Review in the year 2008 by John K.B. Ford and Randall R. Reeves. Uh, Now, you might remember in, in the last episode, the context was I was consulting this paper uh, to explore whether the barnacle incrustations on gray whales should be thought of purely as uh, as uh, either a parasitic type of infestation where it's mm-hmm. harming the whale or as a commensal infestation where, you know, the barnacle's getting something out of it. It has a substrate that brings it uh, water flowing over it so it can filter feed and it gets protection from predators. But the whale is not really affected one way or another. That would be a commensal relationship or, and this was the hypothesis put forward in this paper, there is actually a mutual benefit to the uh, whales that are encrusted with barnacles because, as the thinking goes, these incrustations with their, you know, hard uh, calcium carbonate plates might actually uh, serve as a kind of weapon or armor on the outside of the whale when it is attacked by orcas. And there's some evidence for thinking of it that way, but it's not certain. Right. And I think you mentioned, too, that like one possibility is, well, a predator might think twice about biting uh, part of a whale that's encrusted with these hard barnacles. Um, or it might injure itself doing so. Right. Yeah. So the, the quick uh, additional work effect, uh, there is one variety that, uh, um, that excels in attacking sharks. And one of the ways that apparently this, uh, this uh, ecotype is often identified is that they'll, the, the, it's, it's rougher uh, food to have to depend on. And they'll often uh, grind their teeth down, like basically to the gum line over Ugh. time. Yeah. So, uh, so they're not above some the killer killer whales in general not above trading off dental health for um, a sustaining meal if they have to. I might be thinking about that all day. Just uh, <laughs> just kind of gummy mouth whales. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, I wanted to come back to this paper to more broadly explore uh, some of the ideas it it puts forward about the ways that that whales like gray whales, that baleen whales have had their bodies and behavior shaped by uh, predator pressures, uh, specifically pressure from orcas. Uh, And this paper was exploring the different types of survival strategies for different species of baleen whales when confronted with orcas. And the authors proposed grouping them basically into two main classes. Uh, One class of whales were the ones with uh, flight strategies and the others were fight strategies. The flight strategy is mainly practiced by whales in the Balaenoptera genus. So this would include the common minka whale, the Antarctic minka, the Brutus whale that's spelled, it looks like brides, B-R-Y-D-E, but I think it's pronounced bruda, the say whale, the fin whale, and the blue whale. And with all these strategies, their reaction to a pod of orcas is basically just speedy retreat. They make a beeline out there. Uh, The direction does doesn't really seem to have any consistent relationship to the shoreline. They just make a beeline away at top speed, usually speeds between 20 and 40 kilometers an hour. And these are speeds that orcas, I believe, can typically match, but only for a short time. They mm-hmm. usually can't or won't keep up with this speed for a long time. So they just fall back and, and don't catch them. And a lot, and we'll get into this, but a lot of their tactics often revolve around sustained attacks. Yeah. 
However, with these flight species, they can usually get away because they just swim fast and they, they get out of there and the orcas don't keep up the chase. But uh, an interesting thing is that the all these flight species I just named, if they are overtaken by orcas, they usually are not able to put up much resistance at all. And they just mm. sort of like submit to death. Uh, or that, that might be overstating it, but they, they do not really have much uh, close fighting capacity. Hmm. On the other hand, you've got the fight strategy, and this has been observed in other baleen whales, such as the southern right whale, the North Atlantic right whale, the bowhead, the humpback, and the gray whale, the ones we're focusing on in this series. And they say, uh, the authors here also say that the North Pacific right whale probably fits in this group too, but they, there haven't been enough documented cases of their encounters with orcas to say for sure. But the fight group encompasses a more diverse set of tactics, basically everything except for high-speed, one-directional swimming away. So what do the, the fight strategies include? One, uh, Rob, I think you alluded to this a little bit earlier, but uh, we can get into more detail now. One is group formations. When in sufficient numbers, some fight strategy whales respond to orca harassment by grouping together to form defensive formations, for example, by placing calves in the center of a, a sort of shape where they're encircled by adults. Uh, one example the authors give is something called the rosette, which is a circular formation with the heads, the, the adults will like make a sort of flower petal shape and they, they will put their heads in the middle around the calf and then have their tail flukes pointing out, uh, which uh, if you have seen the, the mighty slap of a gray whale's tail fluke or not just a gray whale, any of these, you know, like a humpback's uh, tail fluke, you can imagine why that might be threatening to an approaching orca. And an important thing to point out is that this type of thing, these group formations, are not only observed in the baleen whales we're talking about in this study. Uh, like some toothed whales, for example, sperm whales, have been observed to do something similar when harassed by orcas. Of course, sperm whales are predators, but they uh, they tend to prey on things like you know squids and stuff. And their calves are also sometimes attacked by orcas. Yeah, I've seen this uh, defensive formation that I guess we could kind of compare to uh, like circling the wagons. But I've seen it referred to as the marguerite formation in sperm mm. whales. And it's something that, sadly, whalers uh, would sometimes take advantage of. They realize that if you had an injured whale, it would, like, basically draw in this defensive formation of additional whales, which you could then also kill. Yeah, and this, this fact of some whales coming to the aid of other whales is interesting. It, it, like, it's kind of heartwarming. The author has mentioned southern right whales and humpbacks having been observed to join in with single whales or groups that are under attack by orcas, almost to help provide group defense. Mm -hmm. Now, we alluded to this a minute ago with the, the tail flukes pointing out, outward, but some of the the fight strategies of these whales are just physical blows like baleen whales uh, will sometimes lash out and strike at orcas most often with either pectoral flippers or with the flukes with the tail and the authors also say that quote right whales and humpback whales occasionally also lunge or swing their heads at attackers so uh, so it, it seems like uh, throughout this paper the humpbacks really seem like the the fightiest of the 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 fight whales like they they will really put up a fight but uh all of these whales are are powerful and can can swing a fluke or a flipper 
Yeah, it makes sense, I guess, that the gray whales are maybe not engaging in, in head-based combat so much because their heads are, are just generally smaller compared to something like a humpback whale's head. Uh, but they're certainly, they certainly use the flippers and the flukes. In fact, one of the, uh, the things in, um, in Baja, California, that the guides mention, they're like, do not, under any circumstances, attempt to touch flippers or flukes because those are the weapons of the whale. Um, you know, the only thing you're touching, if the the whale is is curious and permitting it, is you're touching basically the head region. Yes, and while all these fight whales can put up a fight, like they can deliver a mighty smack with the with the tails or with the flippers, uh, it it seems consistent that the gray whales are thought of as uh, some of the least inclined to deliver a blow in defense, and instead practice some other interesting defensive strategies uh, more often. Yes, this this is fascinating. Uh, so let's get to what some of these other strategies are. The authors, one of them is environmental refuge. The authors mm-hmm. write that uh, all of the fight strategy whales, except perhaps humpbacks, try to seek refuge in the physical environment for defense. And gray whales are singled out as the best example of this, of refuge seeking. When threatened, they head for shallow waters. That's kind of interesting. If if you don't read any further, you might really wonder why that would be. That would I would almost imagine like, oh, a whale would wouldn't a whale feel kind of cornered in shallow waters? But it turns out uh, this is helpful for a number of reasons. One, shallow waters provide potential hiding places, such as in uh, kelp beds, like forests of seaweed, or in breaking surf. And in both of these cases, these these are kind of like blinds for whales. It's a place where it's harder for orcas to locate and detect them. This also makes sense, this distinction, when you think about, say, like the humpback whale is a whale that uh, uh, its range includes, um, you know, far open waters. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but again, as we've discussed with the gray whale, these are whales that generally don't stray too far uh, from the, the, the shoreline, from the edge of the continent. Uh, right. So, like, this is their, they, they really have a home turf advantage here. Yes. And uh, another thing the authors point out is that the gray whales can make themselves even more invisible when hiding in shallow water through a breathing technique known as snorkeling, where uh, essentially they expose as little of their body as possible above the surface to breathe. Basically, only the blowholes are exposed. Now, why would this make them harder to find? The researchers suggest it may be because this is somehow a quieter way to breathe than their normal breathing movements uh, and orcas hunt in part by sound. But, and this, this part is really important, in addition to providing hiding places like kelp forests and breaking surf, shallow water also protects gray whales by depriving orcas of room to stage their preferred attacks. So the predators in, in shallow water simply cannot maneuver the way they need to, to to do the attacks they want. And these attacks would include like ramming the calves to try to separate them from adults. Yeah, it's, it's worth noting here that, that orcas are, are certainly susceptible to beaching. Uh, you know, granted, there are, of course, famous examples of self-beaching attacks by orcas against uh, uh, against creatures on, uh, you know, just just on the shore. Though this, it's worth noting, seems to be a, a learned tactic and not an instinctual one. So it takes even the, these uh, these orca groups that that practice self-beaching as a hunting tactic. Uh, it takes them a long time to learn it and do it properly. Yes, and it seems it at least certainly for the kinds of orcas that prey on whales. Uh, the the shallows are just not where they're comfortable. That it is not mm-hmm. where they have room to 
to make the moves that they need to make usually to get a calf away from its mother and, and kill it. Right, right. So for this reason, the authors say that, uh, in fact, orcas usually abandon an attack if the prey is able to make it to the shallows. So the gray whale gets into the shallows. The orcas, it's not like they, they usually will keep trying and fail. They're not even going to follow them there. They just give mm. up. Now, I think another point that we might want to remember is that uh, it seems to me a, a retreat to the shallows is not without risks. You might think, well, why would that involve risks? But uh, the authors here mention, quote, fight species that retreat into shallow water would need good maneuverability to negotiate obstacles and prevent accidental stranding. So, I mean, stranding is, is a real threat when you're a whale and a whale that goes into the shallows to hide. I think that could be thought of as somewhat analogous, not completely, but uh, somewhat analogous to a land animal trying to hide from a predator by going into the surf in the ocean. Mm -hmm. Like there is a chance you get washed out and drown. Yeah, yeah. Now, it, it does seem, though, that the grays are, are quite good at navigating the shallows. That seems to be the case based on the materials we've been looking at here. But, but again, just going back to my observation of them uh, in Mexico, uh, the, the lagoon was, again, reasonably shallow, you know, deep enough that the, the whales can maneuver uh, easily in there and, and even move around at some, some rather um, intense speeds. Because, the, again, there was the, the calving, there, was the, there, were, there were mothers and babies, but there was also mating going on. And the mating gets a lot more frenzied. Uh, they'll do this thing, too, that's called, I think, uh, sometimes referred to as uh, freight training, I think is the term, where they're like just a, a group of whales will just start zooming through the water. And, uh, and their speeds, to me, were, were quite impressive. But, uh, but still, like this is a lagoon, the tide's coming in and out. There were some fairly drastic changes um, based on the tides. So, uh, yeah, it seemed to me like the, the grays really knew what they were doing. And it makes sense, again, because the gray whales are a, a species of whale that don't ever really go too far from the shore in the grand scheme of things. And they're, 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 the way they feed is to go down to the bottom. So they're, they're tied to kind of like the edges, the hard and soft edges of their um, uh, oceanic environment. Mm -hmm. Mother's Day is right around the corner. And in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. <laughs> oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed 
and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. But We Loved is a podcast about queer history. I'm Jordan Gonsalves, your host. Growing up, I thought being gay was the worst thing I could ever be. The gay history I learned was tragic. Jerry had died of AIDS, and it's like, what is happening? It was survival. That's why it's called survival sex. But as I interviewed queer elders, I realized there was another history that I had never been taught, a history of courage and perseverance. I wanted to take control of my story and not be ashamed of it. And it was a history full of love. The joy we found in saying husband again and again and again was incredible. And while learning this new queer history from my elders, I realized they had so much wisdom to pass down. The key is to understanding yourself, learning to love and embrace yourself. From iHeart Podcasts, I'm Jordan Gonsalves, and this is But We Loved. Listen to But We Loved on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right. Uh, so next thing, we've talked about group formations, physical blows, environmental refuge. The next thing I want to mention is defensive maneuvers. Hmm. So gray whales are less inclined to physically fight by striking with, with flukes or flippers, though they will certainly do that in cases when defending calves. They just do it less than other species, such as like uh, humpback whales. Uh, but the authors write, quote, Instead, they often roll at the surface so that their dorsal surface rather than their ventral surface, meaning the back instead of the belly, is exposed to attack from below. Killer whales often debilitate and kill baleen whales by ramming forcefully and repeatedly into the ventral sides of their prey. Thus, rolling upside down may protect the vulnerable underside from attack. And I've actually watched uh, some documentary footage of exactly this and the next thing I'm about to mention happening when uh, orcas are swimming up on a on a gray whale uh, adult uh, that she will just roll back and expose her belly up above the water and have her back down below. I guess the back is much more protected uh, from these striking attacks by the orcas. Again, just pure observation on my part, but uh, some of the whales that would come up to the boat would do this. They would roll onto their uh, under their backs. And uh, I, I didn't think about it at the time because at the time it's like they're kind of like big dogs. It's almost like they want me to scratch their belly. Mm-hmm. If my arm, again, were like, you know, 20 feet long, maybe. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but uh, yeah, like this is maybe they're kind of rehearsing behaviors as well. I don't know. Mm-hmm. This next thing is really interesting. This is something gray whale mothers apparently do when escorting calves. Um, not only do they roll over on their backs at the surface of the water to keep the the more uh, vulnerable ventral side or the belly uh, up above the waterline, they will sometimes literally lift their calves out of the water up on their bellies, placing them out of reach of the orcas. So the orcas are trying to ram the calf and injure it and get it away from the mother. So the mother will flip her 
more protected back underneath and get the baby up on like above the water on top of her. Fascinating. Yeah, this reminds me again, like one of the the behaviors you see from the babies eventually in the lagoon is that they'll start when they're uh, strong enough, they'll start breaching. They'll start kind of like jumping out of the water, not just sticking parts, part of their head up, but actually like jumping most of the way out of the water, if not all the way out of the water. And uh, it's thought that this may also be rehearsals for defensive maneuvers as mm. the mother and calf eventually move out of this protected lagoon and into rather dangerous domains of the orcas. Right. And so you could see how that could be that kind of maneuvering practice could be useful in both ways for these purely defensive maneuvers where like the calf is trying to get up on its mother's belly to get away or for actual attacks if they're trying yeah. to slam down on the orca or something. Yeah, because these babies, again, they're these are these are these are big babies. Now, one thing explored in this paper that caught my attention is the relationship between these different uh, fight versus flight strategies and how that manifests as morphological differences, differences in the the body shapes of these different types of whales. So the, the authors write that flight whales, the ones that just escape as fast as they can, are, you might not be surprised to learn, more streamlined for fast movement with elongated forms, uh, typically smaller flippers to reduce drag while swimming, mm-hmm. and what they call high aspect ratio flukes, uh, which they say this is, a, quote, a measure of surface area relative to fluke length for propulsive efficiency and high speed. Uh, so you can look up pictures of this if you want, but these these flight whales will tend to have um, just less chunky looking flukes, whereas mm-hmm. the the fight whales have kind of I don't know more rounded, uh, thicker uh, flukes that just have more surface area. Well, looking at this illustration you provide, it's like if you turn the fluke on its side and assume that it is a mustache, um, you're more the closer you are to a pencil thin mustache. Well, then, yeah, that's going to be your flight. Uh, your fight, though, is going to be your bushier mustache. That That is a good comparison. Yeah. Um, so so. Flight whales are, they're specializing for speed. Fight whales, on the other hand, are not specialized for speed, but for maneuverability. Hmm. Uh, and this is important to think about. So it, it's not necessarily so much for just being able to like hit and deliver a blow with the tail or the flipper, though that is part of it, especially for some of these species. But it's for maneuverability. And what does that mean? Uh, it, essentially, it means being able to turn on a dime. The fight whales have larger and longer flippers and larger fluke surfaces relative to their body size. And what this allows them to do is turn quickly in tight spaces and change which direction they're facing, even if they don't have any forward momentum. Uh, So they can kind of like turn quickly at a near standstill. And uh, I was trying to think about a good analogy here. It seems like the difference would be between like the the turning movement capabilities of an airplane versus a helicopter. Your fight Mm -hmm. whales are going to be more like a helicopter and your flight whales are going to be more like an airplane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's a that's a solid comparison. Of course, being able to turn around quickly is a is a clear advantage if you are trying to defend yourself or especially to defend your young against uh, against killer whales, because you need to be able to orient your body so that the the more defensible part of it or the threatening part of it is facing the nearest killer whale quickly. Um, And this also allows whales such as gray whales to do that, like rolling at the surface. And again, we might think like, where does this give the whale the biggest advantage? Again, it comes down to shallower waters where they can turn on a dime 
uh, but the killer whales cannot employ their 3D hunting tactics. I mean, I don't know how, how far we should go with the helicopter versus airplane, but it's like it's one thing to imagine, uh, say, fighter jet versus attack helicopter just, um, you know, out in the open sky. But now imagine that that imagine combat going down like in a cityscape. Yeah, in a <laughs> tunnel or something. Yeah. <laughs> I've got one last thing from this paper I want to add, which I think should uh, give a little bit of emotional payoff to learning all this stuff about the anti-predator strategies of whales. Uh, and that is the, though, of course, you know, the bo- both the predator and the prey animal, it's not like we begrudge either one. They both have a right to live and the predators do need to hunt in order to survive. But it turns out most of the time these anti-predator strategies are successful. Uh, like in most of these encounters between orcas and gray whales, the orcas are not successful in killing one of the whales, uh, not just gray whales, but the, but all of the whales uh, I think talked about in this paper. It's just that the anti-predator strategies are pretty effective. The flight whales, they swim fast and they usually get away. And the fight whales are usually able to uh, repel or avoid an orca attack. Yeah, basically, it's like what whatever is necessary to to price yourself out of being eaten. Yeah. Can you make yourself just too costly uh, of a of a prey uh, target for the predator? Um, and uh, and yeah, you just have to sort of cross that line. It also always it, uh, thinking about this. It always reminds me of that part in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid about you know would you would you make that jump if you didn't have to? Mm-hmm. There's only so much that the the predator is going to do because ultimately there are there are other whales in the sea. Yeah. All right. Well, on that note, we're going to go ahead and close it up for this episode. We'll be, we'll be back, though, in one uh, final episode on gray whales and also essentially on orcas as well. Just a reminder that Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a science podcast with core episodes publishing on Tuesdays and Thursdays. On Mondays, we do listener mail episodes. On Wednesdays, we do a short-form artifact or monster fact episode. And on Fridays, we set aside most serious concerns and just talk about a weird film. On Weird House Cinema. I forgot to name it, mention the name of the uh, of the Friday episodes. Huge thanks to our audio producer, J.J. Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wooded! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh. Gene, run! 
Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right. 